Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah and the life of Nehemiah. Last week or two weeks ago, actually, we saw how opposition and struggle will always be present when you attempt to do God's work. How many find that to be true? Whenever you step out in faith to accomplish something for God, there's always going to be something in your path. And when I mean, when I talk about God's work and what God wants to accomplish, I don't always mean work in the church setting. Because first and foremost, God wants to build you up individually. He cares about you personally. Then he cares about what happens in his church. He cares about you as individuals, as his children. And as parents, we want what's best for our kids, right? We want what's best for them. And you know, I'm, I'm looking at the little ones here and I'm, I'm just, enjoy the time you have now because it is going to go fast. And mom and dad, grandpa, grandma say yes, amen, right? It was yesterday when they were that little, right? It, it, it goes so fast and you want the best for them. You want what is best for them personally before whatever they do in their life. You want God to be there for them. And God wants to have the best for his kids. That's us. His purpose and plan is to bless us and keep us maturing in Christ. Us as parents want to encourage their young people to grow up to be great Christians. God wants us to grow up to be great believers as well. That's his plan for each one of us. And from that, if you are maturing and you recognize the blessings in God's, in, that God's put in your life, you can't help but want to share that with other people. You're excited about it. You want to share what God's done for you and other people's lives. But the problem is you can't give to others what we don't possess ourselves. But once we realize how good God is to us and how, you know, the Bible says the, the goodness of God leads people to repentance, and when you see how good God's been to you, you'd recognize how, how much you owe him. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was facing right now. The enemy desires to not let that happen. What the enemy does to churches and ministries, he starts with individuals. So when we discuss Nehemiah's work as a nation, all the opposition that he faced as a nation, we have to understand that that same type of opposition also applies to us as individuals. Now, we ended the verse two weeks ago with this verse, Nehemiah 6.15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elo in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. So we saw Nehemiah persevered through the opposition. He kept on chugging. No matter what came up, he was able to handle it with God's help. And if we are faithful to persevere with whatever we face individually, and we're all going to face it, the Bible says God will finish what he starts in you. My favorite verse, one of the first verses I memorized was Philippians 1.6, and he says, I'm sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day of Christ Jesus. How many believe that? Whatever God starts, you follow through, God will complete that in your life. But just to remind us how difficult it was for Nehemiah during these times, it says this in verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and, rep and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son, Johanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. 
Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Now, it took 52 days to complete the wall. What was happening during those 52 days? During the 52 days, even though the opposition was coming, the enemy didn't quit. He didn't take a rest. He kept on attacking Nehemiah, but he developed a different tactic. So rather than attacking him from the outside, he began to attack him from the inside. Now you had these nobles, these guys in Judah who were, who were not your garden variety Jews. They were noble. They had you know, their offices. They were well-known. And fellow Jews to the ones who were building the wall. You would think of all the people that were in the town to support Nehemiah, those in the leadership and those in, in noble positions would be the one to support them. But they didn't. Why didn't these leaders support Nehemiah? Because I believe they were in positions of influence and they entertained what the enemy was telling them. How often do you believe the lies of the enemy? How many have ever been lied to? The Bible says the enemy is the, the devil is the father of lies. You'll never amount to anything. You're no good. You're lazy. All these lies the enemy throws at you through your conscience, through other people, and the enemy wants you to believe them. The nobles in Judah believed the lies of the enemy. They read the letters, they believed the letters, and they were drawn away by what was written. They, they were reading the lies and they believed it. They were sucked into that. And when I, when I read that verse, I thought of this one, Colossians 2.4, Paul said to the Colossians, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I'm sure these letters were well-written. I'm sure they detailed in, in great detail of what he wanted to get across. They sounded good. They were well-written. And the people, the nobles, were believing them. They were not seeking the truth. They didn't test to see if these letters were actually true. They just believed them at face value. And now Tobiah... He's no fool. He was probably flattering the nobles, you know, their positions of high authority, and he was flattering them and promised them something. You know, I'll help you when this is done if you help me. How many realize the enemy is going to flatter you and play into your thinking and probably promise you things that he says he can deliver? But how many realize that sin never fulfills its promise? It always costs more than you're willing to pay. The enemy, that's how he attacked Jesus. He played into Jesus' hunger. Hey, eat this bread. He, play, he, pro, he promised him many things. Hey, if you worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. He challenged his authority. You know, if you're really the son of God, you jump off this cliff, God will help you. How many realize that temptations are no different for us today? Everything that plays into what our natural flesh wants, the enemy will do. And I mentioned before, the enemy is not a fool. He understands each one of our weaknesses. He knows what gets you. He knows what flicks your trigger. He knows what is going to irritate you. And that is what he's going to do. And it's different for everybody. What he tempts me with will be different than what he tempts you with. The nobles believed those outside the faith before they believe someone in their own nation, 
your own family? Are we quick to listen to those outside, what the world says, how the world says it should be done, rather than believing what God says should be done? Takes us back to the first lie. In the garden, the snake said, hey, did God really say this? When the world tempted, did God really say, fill in the blank, did God really say this is wrong? Did God say you shouldn't do this or you should do this? And when you begin to doubt and you don't search out for yourself, you will be tempted and drawn away, just like the nobles were. I wrote here, don't believe everything you hear and read about Christians until you know the facts about it. Doesn't mean you don't search it out and if it's wrong, you, you address it, but don't believe it until you actually do the work yourself. The nobles didn't do that. Why did they reject Nehemiah and accept Tobiah? Because they had relationships with people that were against Nehemiah. Nehemiah 6.18 says, For many in Judah were under oath to him, Tobiah, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulah, son of Berechim, Berechiah. He intermarried. And because of that, remember, in the Old Testament, God says, if you're Jewish, you marry Jewish. If you're, otherwise, you're gonna, they're going to bring in idolatry. And so they intermarried, and now Tobiah is related to the guys in the tribe. He's related to these nobles by marriage. And that relationship that he had in his family creates the problem. How many know that God's word says don't be unequally yoked? Now, we, that addresses marriage, but I think that's any type of really intimate relationship, business, whatever. Don't be unequally yoked because there's going to come a day, I call it a day of reckoning. A day when the two of you are going to disagree on something spiritual. And you're eventually going to do this. When I talk to young people who are going to get married, I, I tell them there's going to come a day and there's going to be two responses you have to that as a believer. When you're, if you're married to an unbeliever or you're in business with someone who's an unbeliever, there's going to come a point where you're going to diverge on what you're thinking and how you act. And you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to stand your ground, which will probably cause an argument or a fight, but you stand your ground for God. Or what most likely happens, and happens more often than the other, is the Christian gives in. To keep the peace, to not cause an argument, you give in. And what happens is you both begin to go astray. That's a God. God says to the Jews, don't intermarry because that's going to happen. God says to us in the New Testament, don't intermarry because that's going to happen. One of you is going to be drawn away by the other. And more times than not, it's the Christian drawn away by the folks who aren't. There used to be a phrase for that. I don't know if they call it anymore when you're dating. They call it missionary dating. How many have heard that term? Missionary, you date someone in hopes to get them to know Christ. It doesn't work. You're not supposed to do that. So now they're, they're married, they're intermarried now, and these nobles felt like they owed an allegiance to Tobiah. Hey, he's family. We kind of got a side with him. We're not related to Nehemiah, but we're related to this guy. Ask yourselves, has there ever been a time when, your fa when a family relationship caused you to do something you knew you shouldn't do? 
I remember when I first got saved, and I may have shared the story before, I, the church sent a letter home to our house. I was a young Christian at the time. And my wife posted it on the fridge, refrigerator. And my parents, who didn't know Christ, were babysitting for us. Our kids were little. And my mom read this letter on the fridge, and she was just, like, mortified that I did this crazy religious thing. And I had a choice at that moment to say, ah, it doesn't mean anything, or to tell her what happened. And it must have been God because I was able to tell her what that meant. Family relationships have to come second to what God is calling us to do. Now, it doesn't mean you, you know, you jettison your family. It doesn't mean you don't hang out together. A lot of cults tell you to do that. You know, if they're not a part of our cult, you stay away from them. No, the Bible tells us just the opposite of that. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith, worse than an unbeliever. It doesn't mean you get rid of your family. It just means that if there is ever a clear choice between what God says to do and what your family says to do, we need to be able to obey God rather than what our family does. And sometimes that's, that's sketchy. I know, I've been there. And it's difficult to, because they don't understand. And you try to explain it to them. And hopefully you can use that as a testimony of what God's doing in your life. We want to be different. If we go along to get along, we're no different than them. God wants us to be able to stand our ground, be faithful Christians, so that when someone who's not a believer sees us, there's something different. And they want that. Verse 19 goes on and says, Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling them or telling him what I said. So it's not enough he's, to po- he's opposed by Tobiah and the nobles. They were all on the side of the, the bad guys. They also felt it necessary to keep t- telling Nehemiah how good Tobiah was. You ever have someone try to convince you that someone's really good? Hey, Nehemiah, this guy, Tobiah, he's really good. He, he's faithful. He's not going to hurt you guys. He's really a good guy. So they kept badgering him with that. When in fact... Tobiah was the opposite of what they were telling him. How many of you watch the news, which I don't, you know, not a big fan, but especially around election time, you'll notice how very religious people who are up for office become. They carry the biggest Bible you can see or you can find, and they're always walking in the church. They have this image of someone. They do that to get our attention. But they, they pass the very laws that God is opposed to. Proverbs 28.4 says, To reject the law is to praise the wicked. When we reject God's, what God says, the Bible says when we do that, we're actually praising wicked folks. Closer to home, How many believers support people, politicians, organizations who are in direct opposition to God's word? They also went back, not only are they telling Nehemiah everything that, how good Tobiah is, they're going back to tell Tobiah everything that Nehemiah says, kind of like a, a snitch, right? They're trying to get on Tobiah's good side. Hey, Tobiah, I got all this inside information. Let me tell you what's going on. I'm an important guy. 
How many of us, this may step on some toes, how many of us share information about others in order to pray for them when in fact we're just basically gossiping? We want to feel like we want to appear to be in the know. We have the inside scoop on someone, so I'm going to tell you something about this person who's really struggling, you know, but pray for them. Do we really want to pray for them, or are we just trying to impress them with the knowledge that we know? And that's exactly what they were doing to Tobiah. They're trying to impress him with all this inside information that I'm, the, I'm really important because I'm close to Nehemiah, and I can tell you everything he's saying. So he's not, in, not only all this, he keeps getting harassed. In verse 19, it says, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Now, we talked about those letters last time. I'm just going to read a, a couple of verses here about those letters. Nehemiah 6.5 says, Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and even have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, the proclamation was going to say. Now this report will get back to the king, so come let us confer together. Now you remember that we talked about whenever the Roman folks thought there was a problem, or the Babylonian folks, or whoever the government was, if they thought there was an uprising and the king of Persia really thought his position was in power, he would be merciless in getting rid of everybody who he thought was opposed to him. And Tobiah is telling Nehemiah, look, I'm sending him information, telling him you're opposing him. If you don't want me to tell him, Come and sit down and we'll talk about it. Well, Nehemiah never did that. And the last verse says, and Tobiah sent letters to what? To intimidate me. It means for the 52 days, he kept getting letters. He kept getting intimidated by Tobiah. One, just telling him, at any moment, the king of Persia can come in and wipe you out. You better sit down and talk with me. Every day for 52 days, he's getting letters. You ever feel like you want to quit? <laughs> Come on. He's getting pummeled with these letters. He's getting pummeled with lies and accusations. I can't take it anymore. I should quit. You ever feel like you're just getting barraged one thing after another after another? It just doesn't seem to stop. Whether it's temptation, there's always temptation. Or maybe it's fear. Or maybe it's hardship in your life. It just keeps one after the other after the other. I'm sure he had the urge to quit at some point. I just, chuck it. I'm done. Or maybe you just want to take a break. How many of you have ever just wanted to take a break? Now, I'll tell you, when you take a break, generally, the break stays. I've noticed in ministry, particularly, when someone wants to take a break from whatever they're involved in, sometimes it's preaching. You know, they want to take a break from being a pastor. That break is not a break, it's the end. They just don't come back because they like the break. And so if Tobiah can get Nehemiah to at least take a break, he figured that this, it won't come back. And, but I'm sure he felt like the urge to quit, give in, but he didn't let it. He didn't let that barrage of 
Aggravation stopped him from what God called him to do. He kept on working. And like we said at the beginning, God was the one who helped him finish his work. Back to Philippians 1.6, I'm sure that God who began the work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished. When I first started studying for ministry, I was 30, something like that. And it was going to be years, and I had a job, I had kids, and it was just going to take forever. And I thought, I'm never going to finish. It's never going to be done. I don't have the time. And as I was praying one night, God put that verse in my mind. God will finish the work in you. And sure enough, he did. So now the wall's done, gates are in place. They can take it easy. Nehemiah can finally just take it easy. I mean, no, it's not the time to take it easy. Not the time to let your guard down. Just because you won a victory doesn't mean the enemy won't be there to steal it from you. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, After the wall had been rebuilt and had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. The gate's up. The wall's up. Why do you need guards? Why do you need all this stuff? Because the enemy wants to take what you've already started. He wants to destroy what you have accomplished there's always a temptation after a great victory. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 15, Jesus was talking to the disciples. He says to them, he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Wow, Peter, man, mountaintop, right? God spoke through him. God gave him this great revelation. He was just on cloud nine. This, I'm the man. I'm the man. The very same breath we have this. From, the time on, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter, he's the man, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter had this great revelation, this great victory. God was just using him in a powerful way. God, Jesus says, on your faith, I'm going to build my church. And the next breath, the enemy comes in and tempts him because of who he thinks he is. Peter, you're the man. You need to stop Jesus from doing that. How fast temptation comes in when you have a victory because you think you're great. Everything's cool. Everything's humming along pretty good. That's when the enemy's there. Whenever you have a mountaintop experience, you can be sure the enemy will show up to kick you right off that mountain. Nehemiah knew that was going to happen. And so he proceeded to guard what had already been done. 2 John 8 says this, Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. It's entirely possible to have a great victory and lose the war. So Nehemiah sets out to guard what God has already accomplished. Now, up until this point, they were building the wall and the gates. But that was not the end. That was not the end of itself. The, the wall and the gates was to protect the people. That was its purpose. But they're only as good as the people who are protecting the wall from letting others get in. 
And if the wall isn't doing its job, if people are ke keep getting in either over the wall or through the gates, then the wall didn't even need to be built. The wall was designed to protect the people inside because that's who mattered, not the wall. The wall was built to protect the people. The wall is a tool to guard and protect and bless God's people. Whatever we do here, this building, it's a tool. It's just a building. The building is designed to house God's people, to bless them and to encourage them. When we get together to fellowship, whatever it might be, the goal of the building is to facilitate what God wants to do. The wall is just there to protect the people and facilitate to the people inside the wall what God wanted to accomplish with them. And so you need to protect what God's already done. So what's his first step? Verse two says, I will put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. So Nehemiah had to choose other leaders. Just like Moses, he needed, you know, his father-in-law said, you need help to do this. Not a one-man job. You've got to protect the city. You've got to protect the walls so that no one gets in. Not a one-person job. Christians are not designed to work and be alone. We are meant to work together as a family unit. As a family unit, you're all here today to support Madeline. That's what it's about. That's what God's family is supposed to do, is support each other. And that means family and church work is not done alone. Everybody needs someone in their life to help them, to encourage them, to challenge them, and to protect them. We need to have each other's backs in those situations. And Nehemiah picked people he knew would do the right thing. Not necessarily the ones that he liked or had a relationship with, but he picked people who would fear God first. How many know that's important? You don't want a bunch of people around you that agree with everything you say. You want people that are there to protect what God's doing in your life. It's important to know and watch who we allow in our life. Who we allow to influence us, who we allow to lead us. It's very important about who you choose to do that. Jesus didn't have 8,000 friends. He had 12, then he had three, then he had the one. That was his core. John was his, his, his go-to guy. Peter, James, and John was the inner three, and then the 12 were there. Watch who you let into your life to lead you. It means watch what you read, watch what you watch on TV, or listen to on the radio. Verse three says, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. The wall is only as good as the gates that let people in. If the guards or gatekeepers opened the gates too early, the folks inside would be sleeping. I mean, they, don't, they, they let the gates open and people come and go as they want, but there's no one inside to watch who's coming in the door. You have to watch who we allow to enter your life. People and negative influence can enter your thoughts and your lives if you don't monitor what you allow in. A constant diet of news and social media will eventually begin to influence your walk with God. How many are addicted to social media? Good, no hands. If you follow that stuff, 
one of two things is going to happen. You are either going to get sucked in and believe what you read and accept it and think it's right, or you're going to see it and, you know, and not like it and get disgruntled and then get really angry about it and maybe do something that's unchristlike. So you kind of got to back off. That with the situation in our country right now, very little that we can do other than pray for what's going on. And I say that not thinking that prayer is little because prayer is the only thing that can actually change what's happening. Prayer is the only thing that God can work through to change because none of us have the ability to change what's going on. We want righteousness. We have to pray that God intercedes. Verse 3 says, While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Now we assume that gatekeepers, it doesn't say one way or the other, but we assume that they're armed because when they were building the wall, they were all armed. So we assume that these guys were armed and they had to be there to protect the folks who were actually closing the gates. The folks who closed the gates were different than the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers protected them as they closed the gates. The Bible is called the what? Sword of the Spirit, right? We have to be constantly armed with the sword of the Spirit to prevent us from, gaining, from the enemy gaining entrance into our life. We have to guard our hearts, guard our minds with the word of God and be ready to defend what the temptation is, but you can only defend it with God's word. You can't defend it on your own. Verse three goes on and says, also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So not only do you have the gatekeepers who monitored the gates, now you had guards that were roaming different areas and you had guards who were stationed outside their houses. If you remember, when they were building the wall, a lot of people who were building were actually building the wall by their house. So they're protecting what they built, they're protecting their house. Now they're being, once they built everything, they are being called on to protect what they already built. Warren Wiersbe says this, if God's people don't protect what they have accomplished for the Lord, the enemy will come in and take it over. How many know that's happening right now? How many great institutions and universities were begun as Christian organizations? The Ivy League schools, the vast majority, if not all of them, were began by Christian organizations. Hospitals were begun by Christian organizations. For the goal, the, the universities were to make preachers, let people know how to read and write so they can go out and share the gospel. Mainline denominations were solid Bible churches. John Wesley, John Knox, Martin Luther, all solid, good, good foundation. But the enemy came in and took them over. We need guards and gatekeepers and faithful believers to keep watch over what God's done in our personal life as well as our corporate life. What has God accomplished through you? What has God done in your life that is awesome and great and a miracle? The enemy wants to come in and take all that away. He wants to just rip it away from you. Either say it didn't happen or live like it didn't happen. We talked at the beginning of the service about being thankful and, allow, and allowing our lives to be a testimony to what God's done. If you really appreciate someone, you really appreciate what they've done for you, you live in order to show them that. Words are cheap. Talk is cheap. Oh, I, I love Jesus. But you don't live like Jesus. You're not really thankful for what he's done. 
And our, God, our job is to guard what God has given us. God has given us His Word. God has given us freedom. God has given us a lot of things. We have to be careful to watch that we don't lose that because the enemy wants to take away what you have. If you become overconfident in your faith, you're giving the enemy a foot in the door. Parents need to guard their homes. Church leaders need to guard their church. Christian businesses need to guard their businesses and guard the way they do business. Nehemiah 7.4 says, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. So the walls and the gates are up, but not a lot of people live in there. They're still back in Babylon. They didn't come yet. So what they had to do, as they were bringing these people into the city, they had to make sure that in the crowd of Jewish people, there weren't people who weren't Jewish. And so they had to check the genealogies of the people coming in. How many know that in, in Bible times, genealogy was a big thing? You had to prove who you were. You had to prove what line you came from. If you look at, even for Jesus, when Jesus was born, they proved Mary's line all the way back. They proved Joseph's line all the way back so you can prove his lineage. And they did that to protect the city from spies and unwanted residents. Now today we classify our country as a, as a melting pot. We, when people come in, we, hopefully they assimilate and become Americans. I don't believe in hyphenated Americans. I'm an American. I'm not a German American. I'm not an Irish American. I'm an American. That's exactly what the Jews wanted to do in their country. They wanted to make sure that who was coming in had genealogy to prove that they were Jewish. And not to be able to prove it meant you became a second-class citizen and you became separated from God's promise. Now, when you get to the genealogies, how many actually read them? I don't. I kind of skip over those chapters and a lot of that stuff. Like I don't, I don't do that. Why, why are they there? I mean, I don't know anybody who actually reads them and studies them. Y'all might, I don't know. Why? Verse 5 says, I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. And the next 20-some verses go on to talk about the people, all the, the families and stuff. Now, I'm not going to talk about every family. You know, you're all happy about that, right? But I want us to understand something. God didn't have to list the families. He could have just given you a bulk number. Yeah, there's 175,000. Or he didn't have to list them at all. Why did he do that? I mean, after all, you know, thousands of year later, years later, why do we care about who the names of the families are? The point is, God cares about each person. He listed the families for a reason. He wants us to understand that the important thing isn't the count of the people, but the important thing is that for God, people counted. We talked at the beginning of the service how God cares about each one of us individually. It would have been easy for God just to bulk them in as a lump sum and not care about them, but God made it a point to list the family's names because he cares about the people. The people had been living in Babylon for 70 years and they risked everything in this new venture. Now remember, a lot of them were born in Babylon while they were exiled. Those who were exiled became comfortable there. 
They were living there. They liked it. Things were going well. They weren't really being persecuted. So for them to want to come back to Judah was a big deal. They didn't want to, they were, it was a new venture for them. They were leaving something that was comfortable and going to something that was new and maybe uncomfortable for them. I'm going to close with this. We had a water baptism class with the kids downstairs for next week. We talked about the gospel and the meaning of water baptism. Whenever you hear the gospel for the first time, or maybe you hear the gospel after many times, and maybe you think about you know, raising your hand when the preacher calls you to raise your hand, or walking the aisle if that's what he asks you to do, or praying the prayer wherever you're at, you're doing the same thing that they were asking the Jews in Babylon to do. Nehemiah was encouraging the people that got comfortable in Babylon to leave and come to where God was, where God was to a place that may be uncomfortable, different, but he wanted them there. When you raise your hand and you accept Christ, you are in effect going from a comfortable place to some place that might be new and uncomfortable for you, only because you don't know what it is. People matter to God. Each one of us matter to God. And maybe you're in a position that you're very comfortable, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. Where you're at, you may be very comfortable. And if you come to accept Christ, you think that your life is going to change radically. I know when I first got saved, I thought, or before I got saved, I used to think to myself, I'm not ever doing this because I'm not, I'm not changing my life. I like my life. I like my rock music. I'm not going anywhere. If I have to chuck all my records and I have to do all this stuff, forget it. I don't want to do it. Because it's comfortable. God doesn't make you do all that stuff. God will work in your life to get rid of stuff, but at that point, it becomes what you want to do, not because of what you have to do. So when you make that commitment to Christ, you are leaving something that's comfortable, going to some place that you have no idea about yet. You hear what people say about it, you know what Christians are kind of like, but you're going there on faith. People were leaving Babylon where God wasn't to go to Judah where God was. As an unbeliever, you're leaving where God isn't, going to a place where God is. It matters to God where you end up because God has already planned a place for you there. Now we talk about our ultimate destination being heaven. We all want to be there. The closer we get to there, the more we want to be there. But if you don't start to follow where God is leading you, you're never going to end up where God wants you to be. Would you stand as we close this morning? If you'd close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. Whether you're a part of our church for years and years, or whether you're new to, to church life in general, the message is still the same. God cares about you. God has a plan for your life. God has a position where he wants you to be, where he is. But we have to start to follow him if we're going to ever wind up in where God wants us to be. Maybe you've heard this message a thousand times or maybe this is your very first time to hear it.
but the goal was still the same. Christ wants a relationship with each one of us. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the doorway of our heart and he knocks, wanting us to open the door and let him in, but he's not going to open it for you. He's not going to make you do it. He wants you to choose it. The Bible says we are all sinners. We're all, we've all fallen short of God's glory. Nothing we can do can merit us a position in heaven, a, a relationship with Christ. But the Bible also says that Jesus came to release us from that sin trap. The Bible says he came, he suffered, he died. He took the punishment that we all should have taken to make us right with God. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Bible says. The offer's there. Jesus says, look, I, I've already paid the price. You can have a right relationship with God, but you have to choose to do it. The Bible also says, as many as confess him with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that person, you and me now, have that relationship. But the first step is recognizing that you don't have that relationship without confessing your sins to Jesus. So if that's you and you want to have that relationship, you're not really sure, it's something unfamiliar to you, some, you're going someplace you don't understand. Trust me, I've been there. But once you get there, once you arrive, you'll understand everything. It's not some mystical thing. It's just a light bulb goes off in your head and now you get the truth. If that's you and you really want to have that relationship with Christ, you want to experience what we're all talking about and you want that, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. The Bible says that nothing happens by accident. Everything God has a purpose to. If you're here, it's because God wanted you to hear something or see something or experience something that he wanted you to do today. And whether it's something that we said or did this morning, God did that for you. The Bible says if you're thinking about God, if you're thinking about this relationship, it's because God is making you think about that. The Bible says no one comes to God unless the Spirit of God draws him or the Father draws him. So if you're thinking about it, that's because God is putting that thought in your mind. He wants you to make the choice. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've been a Christian a long time, but you kind of you drifted from that. I understand. And more than that, Jesus understands. If you want to recommit, you know, God is the God of second, third, and fourth, and 70 times seven chances. God always wants that relationship with you. Just like grown parents always want that relationship with their grown children. They always want it. God always wants that relationship with you. If that's you and you want to get back into that tight relationship you once had. Slip up your hand. All right, let's pray. I'm going to assume that all of us here are committed followers of Christ. And if you're not I believe God's going to still tug on your heart. So, Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather together in your name. 
We're so thankful for the blessings you've poured upon our life. You've, given, you've blessed us more than we deserve to be blessed. And Father, we just want our lives to be a reflection of our gratitude. That we live to honor you, to please you, just to show you that we really, we really are thankful. And Lord, I pray for each person here that God, you would continue to fill them with your spirit, continue to draw them, continue to teach them and help them mature as believers, that you raise them up, that they love you and serve you all the days of their life. So that when the end comes, Father, we will have that tight relationship with you and we will know that we have done everything in our life to honor you. Now our works don't get us in. We don't work to, we don't work to make it to heaven. We work because we've already, we're already going to go there. So Father, I pray your blessings upon each person here, each family. Allow them to experience, as the Bible says, the manifold blessings of God in their life. And allow them to be able to defeat any temptation, any attack the enemy puts in their life, knowing that, God, your word says you will bring them through it and you will allow them to finish what you have had them start. And so, Lord, I commit each person to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a tremendous week. Thank you again for coming. Thank you, family, for coming. Appreciate it.